Today on Categorical Imperatives, we are going to be talking about the judicial philosophies of originalism and textualism. Hey, greetings, and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockheed Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for being here with me today. Now, if you are new to the program, I especially want to welcome you. This is a podcast where we're going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. Now, before we get started real quick, I wanted to draw your guys' attention to something. Now, uh, ever since I began doing this show, I have really been pleasantly surprised by how many people have reached out to me, either in comments or via email, with encouraging words. It has certainly been more than I would have expected for a show with a such a modest view and subscriber count as mine has. Uh, and I'm also pleasantly surprised by the fact that many, um, in fact, I, I'd venture to say the majority of people who reach out to me will all say something to the effect of, I am currently uh, a student in law school, and this or that video of yours gave me great context for clarity on a topic that I am currently learning about, which is fantastic. I always love hearing that, uh, because law students were a group that I had always especially hoped this channel would provide good content for. So with that in mind, I just wanted to let you know I've got a new feature over, if you join me over on Patreon, I now have a separate portal I'm calling Law School Show Notes. And I will be adding resources there with all kinds of information that with the benefit of hindsight, I wish someone would have shared with me when I was where you are at now. I will be updating it uh, every episode uh, with more information really tailored to uh, law school students uh, with information relevant to the latest video. So whether law school is merely something you're considering, or, or perhaps you're a 1L, or perhaps you have your JD and you're working as a clerk or an intern fresh out of school right now, uh, in any of those situations, and many others as well, for as little as two bucks a month, uh, you can get access to this material that will be very helpful to you. Uh, and by uh, joining, you also support the show, which is very helpful to me uh, to develop the channel to reach more people and ultimately to be able to have an even richer discussion with you all about law and philosophy. Now, if you can contribute, I would, of course, be very grateful. And if you aren't in a place to do that right now, that's totally all right. I still do appreciate you coming by and spending some of your time here with me today all the same. And that goes for whether you are a brand new viewer or a longtime subscriber. So, like I said, today we are going to be talking about two forms of legal interpretation, uh, namely originalism and textualism. Now, this is such an obviously important and relevant topic for my channel, I was almost surprised by the fact that I hadn't really covered it. Now, I've talked about originalism and textualism a lot on the show in relation to other methods of interpretation, such as the living constitution or purposivism, but I have never covered these judicial philosophies in their own right. And so I want to talk about the uh, development of modern originalism in general, 
Uh, and then I want to take aim at two very common misconceptions. The first one being that originalism and textualism are just two words for the same thing, and this is not true. The other being that originalism and textualism are fundamentally conflicting interpretations in the same way like originalism and the living constitution are fundamentally uh, incompatible interpretations. This is also not true. So to start, uh, ori originalism uh, is kind of a broad term under which a lot of things can fall. Now, generally when someone says originalism, they are referring to one of three things, original intent, original public meaning, or textualism. So we will be talking about what the difference is between these concepts. Uh, we will be talking about which is or is not a proper standard in different situations, um, and uh, this is an area where there has been a great deal of confusion, largely because I think few constitutional writers actually bothered to get familiar with how 18th century lawyers and judges construed legal documents. And for other reasons that we will be getting into later, uh, original intent is really a theory that is on its way out, um, but for other reasons we will also get into later, it is still a useful theory to understand, so understand it we shall. Now there are several defining features that hold equally true for all three of these methodologies, uh, and the main one is that they are all examples of what is known as legal formalism. So legal formalism is a descriptive theory and a normative theory of how judges should decide cases. In its descriptive sense, formalists believe that the judge reach their decisions by applying uncontroversial, uncontroversial principles to the facts. Although the numerous decided cases imply numerous principles, formalists believe that there is an underlying logic to these principles that is straightforward and which legal experts can readily discover. The ultimate goal of formalism would be to formalize the underlying principles into a single uh, and determinist system that could be applied almost mechanically. Now, formalism has sometimes been called the official theory of judging, uh, and as a thesis, uh, it stands in direct opposition to what is known as legal realism. Now, as a normative theory, formalism uh, is the view that judges should decide cases uh, by the application of uncontroversial uncontroversial principles to the facts. And as a normative theory, legal formalists argue that judges and other public officials should be constrained in their interpretation of legal texts, suggesting that uh, investing the judiciary with the power to say what the law should be, rather than confining them to expositing what the law does say, is a fundamental violation of separation of powers. Now, this argument finds its most eloquent expression in the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, which provides that the judiciary, quote, shall never exercise the legislative and executive powers or either of them. To that end, the Massachusetts government may be a government of laws and not of men, end quote. So formalism seeks to maintain that separation as a theory that law is a set of rules and principles independent of other 
political and social institutions. Now, another thing is all three of these different types of originalism are textual in nature. Uh, and this means that your decision should be based on the actual words of the written law, as opposed to basing your decisions on what, uh, say, the purpose the lawgiver was trying to achieve. And in this sense, all good originalists need to be good textualists. So let's start uh, by giving some specific definitions to each methodology. Now, original intent usually means the subjective opinion of those who wrote the Constitution as to what a particular provision was supposed to communicate. Original intent is also called the intent of the framers, and researchers try to deduce the original intent by examining both direct evidence, uh, which is what the 55 drafters uh, during the Constitutional Convention had to say, and indirect or circumstantial evidence. Uh, examples of the latter include, among other things, what people said at the time about the instruments during the ratification debates, the meaning of key words in common discourse and in contemporaneous dictionaries, and their, and their meaning in legal and literary sources. Next, original meaning, or original public meaning, uh, is how a reasonably intelligent involved member of the public would have interpreted a provision. Primary evidence of original meaning is how words were used in common discourse and the definitions in contemporaneous dictionaries and legal sources. Circumstantial evidence includes the drafting and ratification conventions, public debates, and so forth. And textualism is a method of statutory interpretation whereby the plain text of the statute is used to determine the legal meaning of the legislation. Instead of attempting to determine statutory purpose or legislative intent, textualists adhere to the objective meaning of the legal text. Textualism may also refer to a set of practical techniques used by jurists to determine the application of a statute through close consideration of the text. Now, obviously, the evidence used uh, to prove each of these three concepts uh, tends to overlap quite a bit. Uh, in practice, moreover, uh, the original intent of a provision is usually the same as the original understanding or the original meaning. But differences do occur. For example, during the 1787 drafting convention, John Dickinson stated that, uh, without contradiction, that ex post facto laws were always retroactive criminal laws and did not include retroactive civil laws. Uh, an example of the latter are retroactive taxes and statutes uh, to cure defective legal proceedings. Now that apparently could have formed the framers' original intent, but during the ratification debates it became clear that many, and perhaps most people, thought that an ex post facto law might be civil as well as criminal. Therefore, that would be its original meaning. So the ratifiers worked out a deal by which the term was understood to include only criminal laws. This was original understanding. So, in the event of a conflict between intent, understanding, and meaning, which should control? 
The key to answering that question is to answer another, and that is, when the Constitution was adopted, what was its legal force? In other words, how would the courts at the time have interpreted it? Now, the Constitution is, of course, a legal document, so you can find the correct response to this question by investigating how judges uh, and other lawyers and public officials interpreted legal documents of the same kind during the founding era. And the best scholarly work on this basic point certainly comes from constitutional lawyer and scholar Rob Nadelson. Now, you can find his full body of research on this subject linked on the show notes page for this episode. But for brevity's sake, uh, I think we can condense his answers down to several key points. One, most legal documents, including state constitutions, were interpreted according to the intent of the makers of the document. Next, the Constitution was to be interpreted by the understanding of the ratifiers who gave it force rather than the intent of the framers who wrote it. That when judges and other lawyers refer to the intent of the makers, they meant the genuine subjective intent. The subjective intent of the ratifiers is the same as the original understanding. And where the original understanding was not recoverable, either because the evidence was lacking or hopelessly contradictory, founding era courts and lawyers applied the meaning a reasonable person would have given a term. That is, they apply original meaning. Thus, the original legal force of the Constitution, as it would have been applied by the founding era judges, lawyers, and officials, is based on the original understanding. If this is not recoverable, then you apply the original meaning. Original intent is useful only insofar as it tends to prove understanding or meaning. Now we're going to be talking about constitutional interpretation specifically. And the main question here that we're going to be answering is what is the difference between original intent and original public meaning. So I'll start with a brief history, uh, and then the formal differences, and then a word on common usage. Because in common usage, original intent is sometimes called uh, old originalism, and original public meaning is sometimes called new originalism. Uh, and I will explain why this is, and why it's not a problem as long as you know what's going on. So in the 1960s and the 1970s, there was a growing disconnect between what the Constitution seemed to say and what everyone had always thought the Constitution meant and what judges were suddenly saying the Constitution actually meant. Court rulings became increasingly untethered from any clear connection to the text of the Constitution or other laws. Uh, a great example of this uh, is the one-person-one-vote doctrine, which is actually I, something I have covered in great detail in some past videos, so uh, I will be putting a link to those in a little card up in the right-hand corner of this video right about now and down in the video description. But, so, the one-person-one-vote doctrine was invented out of thin air in a bizarre 1964 case on redistricting, despite the fact that the existence of the U.S. Senate explicitly refutes this doctrine. 
Now, the Miranda warning was a great development in criminal law, but it was passed not by lawmakers, but by judges. In the 1970s, the Supreme Court imposed a moratorium on capital punishment by judicial fiat. Most controversially, a whole body of decisions from Griswold to Roe to Casey created a right to so-called, quote, sexual privacy, using rationales that were totally divorced from the text of the Constitution, and, increasingly, from rationales used in prior case law as well. Uh, good luck trying to use the sacred marital bed rationale from Griswold to explain Eisenstadt or Lawrence. So there came to be uh, a sense in parts of the legal profession, especially conservative parts, that judges had subtly shifted from applying laws passed through the democratic process to inventing whatever laws they, the judges, happened to like and finding vague legal-sounding rationales for it after the fact. Now this obviously undermined the basic structure of our republic, since laws are supposed to be created by elected officials through a complex series of checks and balances not handed down at the whim of five unelected guys in black robes. So the thinking went, the judiciary needed to find a way to tether itself to some kind of principle outside of its own whims. The judicial branch had to be bound in some way by the laws that had been passed democratically. Now, uh, Raoul Berger's great book, Government by Judiciary, uh, and uh, Robert Bork's 1971 law review paper called Neutral Principles and Some First Amendment Problems uh, both really do a great job of articulating the problem why it is a serious problem, and both offered some of the very earliest suggestions for how the problem might be solved in accordance with the assumption of our constitutional order. So this early attempt at solving the problem was called originalism, uh, but this was the kind that we refer to as old originalism. The idea here was that judges should interpret laws, especially the Constitution, according to the original intent of the framers. So, for an originalist, the judge's job in, say, a free speech case would be to get inside James Madison's head and ask, if James Madison were judging this case, would he consider this speech something that should be protected by law, or would he not? And you determined what the author of the law intended, and then you ruled according to that intention. Now, this theory became popular in the 1970s and the 1980s, and it reached its apex when uh, Ronald Reagan's Attorney General, Edwin Meese, preached it uh, at a now-historic 1985 speech to the American Bar Association. Original intent theory accomplished a lot of what it set out to do. It did tie originalist judges to the democratic process in a way that they mostly just weren't, in the 1960s and the 1970s, it did make judicial rulings more, predict more predictable and less politically driven, and it did reaffirm the Constitution's claims that the laws of the United States and not the opinion of the judge are the supreme law of the land. However, even as Attorney General Meese was giving that speech to the ABA, original intent theory was being critiqued in the legal profession, and a new faction had developed 
with an originalism in response to these criticisms. And there were three basic problems with original intense approach. So, problem number one. Originalism requires judges to determine the intent of the law's author. But the fact is, most laws have many authors. James Madison may have drafted the First Amendment, but he wasn't the only contributor, and he sure wasn't the only person involved in making it law. It is almost certainly the case that there were different views of the First Amendment among different legislators who voted for it. James Madison might consider a particular work to be free speech, while Thomas Jefferson might disagree and Alexander Hamilton would probably have yet another view. And there were dozens of committees and conventions involved in drafting, passing, and ratifying the Constitution. Not all of them seemed to even fully understand what they were voting for. Now, some people voted the way they did because their political allies told them to. Under originalism, what you have to do uh, when the original intent of the framers are in conflict, you have to ask whose intent counts. It really is worse than that. If you really go all the way down the rabbit hole, how many federal laws do you think our legislators today actually read all the way through? And could they really possibly have an intent of what the law is when they never read the goddamn law themselves? All right, problem two. Even if you could identify whose intent should count, how on earth do you identify what that intent is? Judges aren't mind readers, and they aren't spiritual mediums. So, what would Thomas Jefferson say about free speech on blogs? What would Alexander Hamilton say about warrantless surveillance of cell phone signals? Unless you know how to conduct a seance and you can ask them, there's really nothing you can do except go with your gut feeling about how the founders should want the case to turn out. And the whole point of this exercise was to tether judges to the rule of law instead of their gut feelings about how a case should turn out. And problem number three, the intent of the lawgiver does not always line up with the text of the law. And this is, a, there is an extreme example that I'm going to use here to get this point across, but uh, take Title VII. Uh, this is the law that forbids discrimination based on the basis of race, sex, and religion in employment. The original draft of the bill did not include a protection against sex discrimination. A congressman who supposed, uh, who supported employment discrimination on the basis of both race and sex was trying to stop the bill, so he added sex to the text as something of a poison pill because he thought it would make enough congressmen uh, change their votes and kill the bill. So, the original intent of the anti-sex discrimination clause in Title VII is the protection of racial discrimination. So, original meaning, uh, also again called original public meaning, was a revision of originalism designed to answer these criticisms. This newer method set aside original intent and instead focused on original public meaning of legal text. And this is the way that an informed member of the general public would have understood a law at the time that it was passed. And this refinement eliminated the need for mind reading, and it eliminated the need to deal with conflict between lawmakers with different intent.
Now, Justice Antonin Scalia used these refinements to mostly bring an end to the era where the Supreme Court would spend weeks poring over legislative drafting history trying to figure out what a lawmaker intended to do rather than figuring out what they actually did by enacting the law that they enacted. Now, original public meaning still requires a great deal of historical research because it is not always clear to us today what the public of, say, 1864 might have understood the phrase privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states to mean. So, historically, including a drafting history can help provide evidence for the common meaning of those phrases. And original meaning also requires careful parsing. Excuse me, textualism also requires a careful parsing of the text of this statute. Textualists can reach uh, the end of an honest textual analysis and still completely disagree on the correct interpretation. Uh, this is something that uh, Amy Coney Barrett explained in a 2018 Canary Lecture. And this is something that Justices Alito and Gorsuch, both professed textualists, showed in their bitterly conflicting opinions in the 2020 case of Bostock v. Clayton County. Uh, and, of course, just like anything else, these theories can be hijacked by determined judicial activists who distort or exaggerate the original public meaning to reach a predetermined conclusion. So, original meaning does not solve all problems of judicial interpretation. However, new originalism is a much stronger theory than old originalism. And since the 1980s, original intent theory has now been almost totally supplanted by original meaning. Now, there are still a few original intent theorists out there with their own ways of dealing with the problems described above, but those theorists are on the margins. So, why does this matter? Well, because there is a great deal of confusion about what the modern self-identified originalist believes. To this day, I routinely read and hear criticisms of originalism, sometimes even from prominent lawyers, about how originalism can't work because it relies on mind-reading. This is because the speaker had already made up his mind about originalism back in 1982 and thinks that originalism today is exactly the same thing as it was back then. In my opinion, original public meaning is also clearly superior to its main modern competition, that is the living constitution theory uh, that was more dominant during the 1960s and 1970s. Nor am I alone in that assessment, uh, as... Justice Elena Kagan said in 2015, The truth of the matter is, if you wake up in a hundred years, most people are not going to know most of our names. But I think that uh, is really not the case with Justice Scalia, who I think is going to go down as one of the most important historical figures in the court. This may be the first and only time the following sentence will ever be uttered by me. Ready? I think Elena Kagan is absolutely correct. Now, however, I don't believe, as might be assumed, that his legacy of constitutional interpretation, which is, I think, what most people will assume, will be what he is remembered for. Rather, I believe it will be for the way he revolutionized statutory interpretation. And that is our next topic, statutory interpretation.
So we are going to get to the misconceptions regarding originalism and textualism. Now, these are, again, to refresh your memory, that either originalism and textualism are the exact same thing, or they are contradictory methods of interpretation. Now, these are both incorrect for the same reason, that these two methodologies apply to two different types of law. We can see this clearly turning to a description given by textualism's creator and originalism's greatest advocate, Justice Scalia, in the opening remark uh, for a series of lectures he did called Common Law Courts in a Civil Law System. He said, That title is a reflection of my concern with the modern American legal education, and one of the reasons that I believe my philosophy of statutory construction in general, loosely known as textualism, and constitutional construction in particular, loosely known as originalism, are necessary. Now, the first reason for this distinction in interpretive methods is that the Constitution was written very differently from a statute. The Constitution was written in general terms and purposely lacks the kind of technical legal jargon that can make statutes difficult to interpret. That doesn't mean the Constitution is always easy to interpret. Uh, let me try and explain this by using the Seventh Amendment. The Seventh Amendment reads, In suits that common law where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of a trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. Now, when I talk to groups about originalism and textualism, I often ask them, what is the possible meaning of common law here? Now, common law could mean common law as opposed to statutes. It could mean common law in the sense of English law as opposed to the continental European civil law. It could mean common law in the sense of the rules generally accepted in the late 1700s as opposed to modern law. Or common law could refer to these sorts of claims that were historically litigated in common law courts because of the remedies that were sought, such as damages, uh, as opposed to other claims uh, where you would be seeking remedies such as an injunction that were litigated in equity courts or still other claims that were litigated in admiralty courts. Now, as it turns out, uh, even though lay people probably almost never think about what common law as opposed to equity law or admiralty, the court has interpreted uh, suits at common law as referring to precisely that distinction, and I believe the court is lightly correct, because that was probably the original meaning of the text. Now, to the extent you are going to be an originalist, you ought to be a textualist. You may, of course, uh, reject both originalism and textualism, but if you do care about originalism, it's hard to say we're going to interpret that text because it was enacted into law by the framers, but we are going to use our modern meanings for words that the framers would have never contemplated. This is essentially constitutional law by pun, and it is a strange way of interpreting a legal provision. If you care about the text, because that's what the framers enacted, you rightly resolve the ambiguities in the text by considering what the text meant at the time that it was made into law, 
rather than importing a modern ahistorical understanding. Now, constitutional interpretation through original public meaning considers the plain meaning of the Constitution's text as it would have been understood by the general public or a reasonable person who lived at the time that the Constitution was ratified. While this approach has much in common with textualism, it is not identical. The original public meaning approach to understanding the Constitution is not based solely on the text, but rather draws upon the original public meaning of a text as a broader guide to interpretation. Justice Scalia's majority opinion in D.C. v. Heller illustrates very well the use of original public meaning in constitutional interpretation. In that case, the court held that the Second Amendment, as originally understood by ordinary citizens, protected an individual's right to possess firearms for private use unconnected with service in a militia. Justice Scalia's opinion examined various historical sources to determine the original public meaning, including dictionaries in existence at the time of the founding and comparable provisions in state constitutions. With that said, let's turn our attention to what textualism is. So, textualism is a method of statutory interpretation, whereby the plain text of the statute is used to determine the meaning of the legislation. Instead of attempting to determine statutory purpose or legislative intent, textualists adhere to the objective meaning of the legal text. Textualism may refer to a set of practical techniques used by jurists to determine the application of a statute through close consideration of its text. These are known as canons of construction. Now, the most important one of these is known as the plain meaning rule. And textualism is entirely consistent with the plain meaning rule. And the plain meaning of a word is determined by its dictionary definition, its placement in the body of the text, and its common usage at the time the statute was written. A judge that relies solely on the literal or plain meaning of a text does not consider supporting or supplementary sources, such as modern social policy or legislative history when interpreting a statute. So some of the factors considered in textual interpretation, uh, a big one is the speaker's meaning and sentence meaning. Textualism as a speech-related theory assumes a distinction between the speaker's meaning and sentence meaning. The speaker's meaning or the author's meaning of a given text is the meaning that the speaker intended the audience to take from what he or she said. In other words, when someone speaks or writes for a specific audience, for instance, one that is familiar with the author's writing or subject topic, the author can take into account what he or she knows about the audience and what the audience knows about him or her and may adjust the text or language accordingly. Now, sentence meaning, as opposed to speaker meaning, is the meaning that a text has when there is no private information or understanding shared between the audience and the author. And next, textualism and the general public. Now, experts who view textualism as a normative theory of interpretation aim for interpretations that yield the plain meaning or sentence meaning of a legal text. And although texts that are directed to a particular audience on a particular occasion may have speaker's meaning, in general, 
Textualists argue that the plain meaning of the text best serves the rule of law's values of publicity, predictability, certainty, and stability in the law. In other words, textualists maintain that the rulings of the court must be accessible to ordinary citizens. Lay citizens are likely to have to interpret statutes to have their plain meaning because ordinary citizens do not have access to the expertise to understand legislative history. Uh, and I just want to bring up a couple noted textualists. Uh, the first is Frank Easterbrook. Of, he is a judge from the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. He is a noted textualist who uses textualism in a manner of uh, interpreting judicial power to the letter of the law. Easterbrook is one of the most noted federal intermediate appeals judges who is a textualist. And when you read his opinions, a predominant theme in Easterbrook's arguments for textualism is that legislation is the product of a messy process of compromise in which lawmakers may vote for legislation for reasons that have little or nothing to do with the content of the legislation itself. As such, legislative history is an unreliable guide to legislative intent. And to quote Judge Easterbrook, it is fairly easy to show that someone with control of the agenda can manipulate the choice so that the legislator adopts proposals that only a minority supports. The existence of agenda control makes it impossible for a court, even one that knows each legislator's complete table of preferences, to say what the whole body would have done with a proposal it did not consider in fact. But the most important statutory textualist is the late Justice Antonin Scalia. Now, he left his mark on the law in many ways, but uh, almost certainly his greatest legacy will be the way that he changed the way we think about statutes. Before Scalia's tenure on the Supreme Court, most judges and lawyers casually assumed that when a court interprets a statute, its job is to implement legislative intent, and in fact courts often paid more attention to statutory purpose and legislative history than to the statute itself. Scalia rebelled against these interpretive methods. He believed that when a court interprets a statute, the court's job is to read the statutory text and do what it says, even if what it says is stupid even if what it says is what no, what, not what anybody intended. The text of a statute Scalia believed is the law. After all, going back to that famous line from the Massachusetts Constitution, ours is a government of laws and not of men. Consider the compatibility of what James Madison said in Federalist 47 with the ancient system of lawmaking by judges. Uh, Madison quoted uh, the great Baron de Montesquieu approvingly, uh, as follows when he said, Were the power of judging joined with the legislative, the life and liberty of the subject would be exposed to arbitrary control, for the judge would then be the legislator. In the period preceding Scalia's arrival on the Supreme Court, the court used interpretive methods that are almost unimaginable today. It often gave itself up to wholly unrestrained reliance on extra textual considerations, especially legislative history. 
For example, in the 1978 case of Monell versus Department of Social Services of the City of New York, the court considered whether the municipality is a person subject to suit under 42 U.S.C. Section 1983, and with barely a glance at the statutory text, the court launched into an analysis of legislative history that was so long it had to begin with its own overview. The court devoted 18 pages to recounting congressional debates blow by blow and concluded that Congress intended municipalities to be covered. Now, in Citizens to, Prever to Preserve, Overton Park Incorporated v. Volpe in 1971, the court made the now incredible remark that because the legislative history of the statute at issue was ambiguous, the court would have to look to the statutes themselves to find the legislative intent. Now, truly, as Scalia later complained, the legal culture was such that lawyers routinely made no distinction between the words of the text of a statute and the words in its legislative history. That is, of course, until Justice Scalia comes on the scene. Now, Scalia started his protest against these interpreted methods fairly modestly. In the 1989 case of Blanchard v. Bergenson, he challenged the Supreme Court's reliance on legislative history, but primarily on the ground that legislative reports are an unreliable guide to legislative intent. He said that committee reports had become increasingly unreliable evidence of what the voting members of Congress actually had in mind, thereby implicitly accepting that a court should take care of what members of Congress had in mind. Now, Scalia's opinions on this actually evolved over the next decade, uh, and they took on a sharper tone. A few years later, in 1993, in Conroy v. Aniskoff, he said, quote, The greatest defect of legislative history is its illegitimacy. We are governed by laws, not by the intentions of legislators. Now, Scalia crystallized his thoughts into a set of lectures delivered at Princeton in 1995, which later appeared in book form. Uh, he complained particularly about the reliance on legislative history, but that was merely one detail to a bigger picture. And this bigger picture could be summed up as the text is the law, and it is the text that must be observed. Scalia employed this textualist philosophy from that point forward. Legislative history always remained a particular sticking point. Even when Scalia joined an opinion, he made a point of refusing to join portions that relied on legislative history, a practice he continued over the decades. But more generally, he argued that the goal of statutory interpretation is to implement the meaning of the statutory text, not the intent behind the text. Now, for a better understanding of the reasons behind this, I would suggest you guys go check out uh, Scalia's famous 1995 Princeton lecture known as Common Law Courts in a Civil Law System. And these lectures also form the basis of Scalia's book, A Matter of Interpretation.
Now, Justice Scalia's main constitutional argument is that an exclusive focus on the statute's text is mandated by the bicameralism and presentment clauses of Article 1. Under those provisions, a bill does not become a statute unless it has been accepted in the same textual form by both houses of Congress and presented to the President for signature. Hence, the only thing that actually becomes law is the statutory text. Any unwritten intentions of one house or of one committee or of one member in Congress um, presented... Uh, wait, excuse me. Any committee or any member in Congress, they are not itself the law unless it can be shown that they were uh, understood and accepted by both houses and by the president. Now, according to Justice Scalia, relying on committee reports to determine a statute's meaning is tantamount to lawmaking by congressional subgroups that the court found unconstitutional in Chatta. Now, Justice Scalia's strongest point is that the court should not consider legislative background materials to have the force of law, for that might violate the constitutional structure of legislation. Most simply, it seems to be that after Congress has performed its Article I duty of enacting legislation, its views become irrelevant to the very separate inquiry performed by Article III judges and often by Article II administrators. And when they interpret and apply legislation, uh, this argument really appeals to the animating goal of separation of powers to prevent any one branch of government, especially the much-feared legislative branch, from having too much power. If the branch that passes the laws has no voice in their enforcement or interpretation, it will be especially careful not to enact oppressive laws which might be turned against its own constituents. Now, Scalia's textualist campaign was tremendously influential. He changed the way courts interpret statutes. His influence is visible in virtually every Supreme Court opinion interpreting statutes today. Consider, for example, the 2010 case of Bilski v. Kapos, which tested whether a business method can constitute a patentable process. Now, for over a century... Courts applied patent law with a rich awareness of the history, policies, and background understandings of the patent system, which frequently caused courts to gloss, strain, and even depart from the patent statute's text. In Bilski, however, the Supreme Court simply consulted dictionary definitions, common usage, and the interpretive canon against statutory redundancy. Gone were appeals to history, policy, and background understanding. Cases like Bilski are far, far more common today than cases like the previously mentioned Monell or Overton Park. With regard to legislative history, Scalia's most uh, particular concern, uh, the Supreme, excuse me, uh, sorry, let me start again. With regard to legislative history, Scalia's most particular concern, the Supreme court still consults it, but it does so in an almost apologetic way. Often it adds a disclaimer such as, 
for those who consider legislative history relevant, and then it gives the legislative history. The practice of putting legislative history on par with statutory text has been repudiated. Nonetheless, the Supreme Court and federal courts generally have never fully accepted Scalia's textualist ideal that the text is the law. Now, Justice Elena Kagan, in a lecture at Harvard Law School, recently said that thanks to Scalia, quote, we are all textualists now, end quote. Kagan, however, is correct only in a relative sense. We are all textualists now compared to the 60s and the 70s. It is now generally agreed that when interpreting a statute, a court should start by reading the statutory text and should not lightly depart from that text. But we are not all textualists by Scalia's definition. There is not a general agreement that the text is the law. Recent cases show that the courts are not committed to following statutory text no matter what. Now, before I go, I just uh, wanted to let you guys know that over on my Patreon page on that the Law School Show Notes portal that I told you about, there will be a link in the description, what I have included for today's episode is a copy of Scalia's Princeton Lecture, Common Law Courts in a Civil Law System, as well as a huge list of canons of construction and several law review articles relating to the material we talked about, most notably Judge Frank Easterbrook's uh, classic law review article, Statutes Domain. So go and get all this and more for the low, low price of just $2 a month. And I guess uh, until next time, all that's left to say is uh, thank you for watching. If you liked the episode, hit the thumbs up. If you disliked it, hit the thumbs down. If you want to leave me a comment, I do always love to hear back from people, get their thoughts on this stuff. Uh, and yeah, until next time, this has been me, Lockheed and Liberal, talking about originalism and textualism on categorical imperatives. And as always, De Linda S. Carthago.